Welcome back to the 24th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including ones talking about the battle between religious liberty and labor law, one interesting story about the overinflated public school system, and our last main story about how Saudi Arabia may have just won this upcoming election for the Republicans. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling for me. Let's get into our daily debate. So I think we can all acknowledge that education is one of the most important parts of growing up as a person, especially nowadays when you know, high school, middle school, they're all supposed to build this foundation, and it's kind of expected of a lot of different people to go to college. So education, especially at these younger ages, is extremely important. So I, I pose a question, which is, is America's education system broken? Is there too much private interest, too much federal government involvement? Let me know below. There are lots of different angles you can take here, and if it's not broken whatsoever and it works perfectly and that's what you think, Put it on down there, and hopefully I can respond and we can have a little conversation. So, our first article, The Right's Religious Liberty Agenda is on a crash course with labor law. So there, there's one core issue that this article is, is really trying to address, which is the Supreme Court has made it so that basically anyone who is considered a minister cannot sue the religious employer because it would mean that the state is getting involved in church business, and they're trying to assure this separation of church and state. Quote, the idea is that under the free exercise clause of the Constitution, which protects the right to practice religion, religious institutions must be able to pick their leaders, and under the Establishment Clause, which ensures the separation of church and state, courts can't determine whether religious leaders are competent at their job. Therefore, whether they are fired justifiably, end quote. So that is the real crux here. So we have three different stories from three different people. Um, They are all people that worked at Christian schools, and they were all fired for one reason or another that could be considered discriminatory. Uh, The first lady that is there she was in a same-sex marriage and it came out over time i I know excuse excuse the unintentional pun but the fact that she had a same-sex marriage came out and the church fired her after saying you can either end your same-sex marriage or you can slowly you know step away and then we'll we'll terminate you at the end of the quarter or We'll just outright suspend you and fire you, basically. And she didn't back down. She said she's not going to end her relationship with her wife. And eventually, when she was fired, she sued for wrongful discrimination, which, you know, makes sense. You should not be fired for any, and I repeat, any of the characteristics that you have. And even some of the choices you make, you cannot be fired just because you make those choices or you have that certain part of your identity that you can't change. It's inherent to you. At least that's what these people would argue. So I I think it's very interesting 
that these schools are using a loophole that has been, I don't want to say designed, but has been carved out of labor law because, as we'll get to right here, for ministers, they cannot be, they cannot sue their organization for wrongful termination because of this this loophole and saying that, well, we can't determine whether you were fired because you were bad at your job or because of discrimination, because then that would be the state stepping in and saying, no, 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 church, you're doing it wrong here. That would be the state stepping into church business as the Supreme Court and a few other lower courts have seen it. So it's a very tricky business. And you may ask yourself, okay, well, if a minister can't sue its employer, then what what is a minister? And I think that's a very important question that is trying to be addressed here. The Supreme Court and other courts have tried to kind of define it, and they haven't done the best job here. Uh, Quote, an increased number of religious employers have been claiming an even wider universe of employees can be considered ministers and therefore exempt from major anti-discrimination protections, end quote. So is that right? I mean, is that okay? First, is it okay that a non-static target, when it comes to what a minister is considered, is that okay? If they can keep moving the goalpost so you can't even technically protect yourself, if you're working in one of these institutions and they have a clear definition of a minister at first, and they say it is anybody that helps our congregation pray and spread the faith. You know, that's still a very broad definition of a minister, but at least there's one there, and you know, okay, if I want to ensure that I'm, let's say I'm a protected class, and I think it's likely that something could happen, then you can say, well, I don't want to do those things. I don't want to be pressured into, you know, giving any faith-related arguments to any of the students. I don't want to pray with them or anything like that. And then you can kind of protect yourself. But over time, the definition has evolved. It has become anybody that helps spread the faith in some of these uh, lawsuits that are being alleged. Some of the employers are saying, well, you actually taught religion. Though you never really prayed with the students, you taught religion. So that, that falls under that purview. Or at the end of the day, you're helping people's you're helping the organization spread the faith. You're helping us get as many people into our church. You're helping us as an organization by being the public face and being a good teacher or a good administrator. You're helping us spread the faith, so therefore you're a minister. And then there's schools on the complete opposite end of the spectrum that say, no, no, you're only a minister if you have been taught or given different lessons on um, faith and the theological aspects of a religion. So, you know, there's a balance here, but there are those actors that really take those exemptions because they don't want to pay out those large, large lawsuits at the end of the day. And there are even organizations, um, one of them being the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty or Alliance Defending Freedom. There are different organizations that have actually begun to counsel some of these churches, some of these faith-based schools on how to ensure that people that work there can be considered ministers so they can't get sued if they are fired for some reason that could be considered discriminatory. So you can see that it's not so... On the surface, it may seem very, very 
you know, nice, or at least it may seem reasonable that they're trying to ensure that the state doesn't step into church business. And I do think there should be a large separation of church and state. But when you have these organizations and schools and different religious organizations taking advantage of this loophole that's only getting larger and the target for what a minister is becoming is only becoming more broad, then, you know, it it can lead to some nefarious or maybe to use a less dark word, at least unethical practices that are, are questionable at best. So then the question is, we talked about how the the target is always moving. It's not static. But then you have to ask, would having a a static target make it easier or harder for these institutions to get away with letting these employees go on discriminatory grounds? I mean, it 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 makes the the idea of having a clear definition of minister I mean, if they have a clear definition of what a minister is, then they can just ensure that all their employees meet those qualifications. So it actually may make it easier for these institutions to say, oh, no, 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 we gave you all this proper training. We made sure that you are considered a minister. And then the second a court hears that, they're like, oh, they're a minister. We can't step in between here. We we can't come down on the merits of this of this argument from the plaintiff because, no, no, you were a minister and we can't get involved in church business. So I I think it's a a tricky one and it's hard to really crack down on. And, you know, this article really does ask the question, how did we get to this point? Quote, in 1972, the Federal Fifth Circuit Court created the ministerial exemption. In 2012, the Supreme Court weighed in on the ministerial exemption for the first time, ruling in... Hosanna Tabor versus EEOC, that Cheryl Pritcher, a teacher at the Hosanna Taylor Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, goodness, that was a mouthful, was a minister, and that the school couldn't be held accountable for allegedly firing her over her disability, disabling narcolepsy. But in 2020, the court issued a ruling in Our Lady of Gallup School versus Morsey and Bureau that threw out much of that framework. Two teachers at a Catholic school, Agnes Marcy Burrow and Christian Bile, sued the school, claiming that they were fired illegally. Marcy Burrow for age age discrimination and Bile for disability discrimination. Neither teacher had religious titles or training or held themselves out as ministers, but because they taught religion classes and prayed with their students, the court said they performed religiously important functions, end quote. So in the Supreme Court's and the court system's attempts to not get involved in church business, they've actually made it practically impossible to sue a church or a religious institution for wrongful termination if you are an employee there, which is absolutely insane. We've created another uh, another protected class, essentially, of church organizations that cannot be touched by wrongful discrimination, wrongful termination lawsuits, which is, it's so intriguing. And I don't necessarily think that the cabal of the 
court system is over here like, oh, <laughs> we'll make sure they can't be sued. I don't I don't think they're doing that. I, I'm not trying to I'm trying to be comedic because at the end of the day, they're trying to do what they think is right and s- separate church and state. But it's created a l- major, major loophole that could be exploited. And one reason that I think it's very interesting and this could be exploited because of some of the definitions they gave in some of their decisions is it doesn't just apply to nonprofit and churches. In some sense, it could apply to for-profit businesses. I mean, if you remember the decision from Hobby Lobby where they weren't, they didn't have to give certain uh, care to certain employees. If that organization claims that they are spreading a certain religion, a certain faith, and that their employees are doing that as a part of their daily job, they're spreading these certain values, then it's possible that someone could stretch the definition of a minister or someone that is spreading the faith and therefore could not sue that for-profit company, their employer. So, you know, I think it's a tricky, tricky one. And I think there's going to be a few court cases coming up here in the next few years that are really going to help either suss it out or make it worse. And we'll see where it goes from there. But let's pivot to our next story from the American Conservative. The Dysfunction of Big Education. So normally, I'll ask you, normally when you think which political party, which side of the aisle is really going to address the education issue. Which one is going to be better suited to ensure that our students, our kids, get the education that they need? And I would argue, at least for, at least while I've been alive, it has been the Democrats. When it comes to normal education, normally, Democrats have been the party that people trust to really best serve their interests. But, quote, a July impact research survey of likely voters across 62 hotly contested congressional districts found that respondents now believed 47 to 44 percent that Republicans could better manage local education. The numbers were even worse for Democrats among parents who favored the GOP by nine points, end quote. So there are a few major issues that have really led to this distrust in Democrats which is um, the teaching of critical race theory, concepts of gender and sex and gender identity. And also there's a kind of a perception that schools are not challenging and they're, they're not rigorous enough, or at least not as much as they used to be. And you kind of saw this emerging after parents finally got a glimpse into the classroom after COVID-19. They, they saw what their kids were being taught and they said, whoa, I, I didn't realize they had gone this far or whoa, I didn't realize that they're not challenging Jimmy enough. I, I thought I thought this was a, a robust school system, but it turns out it wasn't. So people are really, really waking up. And there are a few obvious downsides to a publicly funded school system. And I say obvious, but you know, with a little bit of critical thinking, you can take these points I'm about to tell you and break them down yourself. Quote One obvious downside is that these institutions provide politically powerful teachers' unions as subsidies via membership dues, bankrolling unions whose priorities are often at odds with those of most taxpayers. As the Harvard Political Review has documented, the National Education Association and American Federation of Teachers are major financial contributors to progressive groups. 
despite the limited support for progressive left politics among the general population. In recent years, union locals have sponsored efforts to defund the police, force states to pay reparations to blacks for the enslavement of distant relatives, and defeat the election efforts of moderate Democrats, such as Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel and California gubernatorial candidate Antonia Villarayosca, end quote. Sorry if I butchered their names. I am not the best at pronunciations, even in English. So, <laughs> um, so we know that the power of these unions has been growing for years, and especially under President Biden, who is a very pro-union president. Uh, these unions have an outsized influence. So we, I actually did an entire podcast about the power that unions have, and also, in some cases, the lack of power they have in certain industries, like at Amazon. But the power that these unions have, especially in states like California and Illinois, I did an entire podcast about that one. If you want to go back and listen to that, we go into it way more in depth. And it's something that I I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time discussing here because there are more points to this story that I want to get at that I think, uh, since I haven't expanded on before, we need to talk about. So, you know, public schools are also becoming uh, a place that, they're slowly, slowly draining resources from the community that they're in. Quote, in recent studies comparing towns that have an affordable alternative to the local district, a low-cost private academy or experimental choice program, for example, with those that do not. So just to break that down to make, make sure that we understand, they're comparing districts that do not have low-cost or experimental choice programs. Uh, They're comparing those to just traditional public school-only districts. Quote, North Carolina University professor Bartley Davidson has shown that the latter pays significantly lower property tax values. The long-term result, Danielson found, is that a slow but steady economic decline marked by decreasing average family incomes and rising rates of poverty and crime, and that end quote, and that's in relation to school districts that are do not have an alternative. And if you do a quick logic test, I, I think that that makes sense on on some level. In that these public school districts, they are the only option. There's no competition there, so they don't necessarily have to have the best services. Now, for the sake of the kids, they probably want to, but at the end of the day, they have no economic reason. They have no incentive to be the best that they can be because there's no competition in the market. And over time, as people flee in order to get to better schools, then the tax base is more burdened by the people that are still there. They take on more of the burden because people have left. And then over time, less funding goes to the school, and it's kind of it's kind of a negative loop. If you look at Detroit, the the white flight to the suburbs, and then out of the suburbs from there, you you can see this trend that's happened a lot over time. And I'm not saying the Detroit issue was all education, not saying that in the slightest, but there is a ripple effect, and there is this chain effect that 
once people start leaving and things start going downhill, it makes it happen more rapidly. More people are like, okay, I got to get out while it's still good. I got to get out while my house value is still okay before everything completely goes down. Because these parents, remember, when they buy these houses, they're, they care about their kids' education. I'm not trying to say they don't. But they also have to worry about their house value. They're making a long-term investment so that they can have a place that's secure for their kids. They can raise them in a safe location. And then also down the road, maybe they can give it to their kids when they pass away as a, a house where they can rent out or you know even just live or even to sell and downsize when they get into their retirement years. So, you know, these things are all important factors. There's one more other factor. Well, I mean, there's two other factors, but I think there's one main one and one that I'll kind of just tack on the end. Quote, public school monopolies play such a pivotal role in keeping down America's depressed communities that promoting some kind of academic competition is the only way to revive them. Quote, middle income households do not invest in areas that have had a hard time attracting or retaining upward mobile families, end quote. And that's exactly what I was just talking about. People do not want to move into a neighborhood that is going downhill. They want to move into that neighborhood that's growing in value, that, oh, I buy my house at 500000 In 10 years, the value is going to be 700000 so I can sell. So remember, there's also economic incentives here for the parents, not just the teachers' unions when it comes to the problem with the school districting and the educational system. So, you know, there's, of course, what can't be forgotten, the corruption, not to mention since the, quote, cost of public school education is borne by all taxpayers and not just families with school-aged children, parents tend to elect school board members, PTA officers, and other town officials who will establish costly non-academic activities that disproportionately benefit themselves, end quote. And what they're getting at here is, oh, so you're sending your kid over to a private school? Well, you still have to pay taxes in our school district, so I might as well juice the money out of you. I might as well have these expensive programs that benefit my kids at the public school but don't benefit your kids at that private school. So, you know, and I don't think that parents are doing this in a malicious way. They're not like, oh, okay, uh, Jimmy, Bob, Joe, you know, I don't really like him. And he's sending his kids to private school. So we'll make sure that he pays more in taxes for these programs for my kids. They're not doing it maliciously. But at the end of the day, parents want the best programs for their kids. They want their kids to have those good sports programs, those good intramurals after class. So... At the end of the day, they're going to push people onto these boards and town officials to enact certain plans that benefit them as taxpaying citizens who send their kids to public schools. It's just that simple. And eventually that pushes out people that don't send their kids to those same public schools because they're like, oh, these taxes are too high and I'm not getting half of the benefits that I should. So it's a very complicated issue and there are lots of different factors here. And I think the author makes some great points. You know, obviously, it's coming from the American conservative, so it has its biases. And I'm sure you could break this down and show different statistics that say otherwise and give other reasons as to why. I mean, redlining, different districting issues uh, that's done on state and local levels. So there are probably plenty of other ways to come at this article and try to understand the education system, but these are definitely factors that we need to talk about and people need to be aware of because 
in order to solve an issue, you have to see all sides. You have to be able to see this side that is saying, no, no, it's really, it's really the school district's fault. And then you also have to be able to look at the other side that's saying, okay, yeah, the, the school district and the way things are formatted, that's an issue. But also there's not enough uh, support from certain federal institutions or there have been discriminatory laws put in place over time that have not benefited certain communities. So you have to look at all sides in order to come to a proposal that will address as much as possible and help as many people as possible. All right, our last story that is not our daily delight comes from MSN.com. Did Saudi Arabia just hand the midterms to the GOP? So if you didn't see, recently OPEC Plus came together and they made an agreement that they would cut production of around 2 million um, oil barrels per day. And this was meant to stabilize the price, obviously, and to help them retain their profit during these economically hard times. And they're also saying they're looking to the future and they're projecting that, oh, there's probably going to be a recession. So we need to ensure that the prices are high going into that recession because demand's going to go down. So they're already going to get hit by that. At least that's one perspective that they give, or at least the people defending them give. So, you know, that doesn't really help us here in America. If, if I'm being honest, you know, reducing the amount of supply that's going to make things more expensive for us here in America. So, as you could probably tell, the Biden administration was not very happy, and they were very disapproving of this move. Quote, Biden had hoped for the cooperation of Riyadh to help starve Russian President Vladimir Putin's war machine, which is largely funded by hydrocarbon sales, and further hinder its invasion of Ukraine. And, of course, Biden wanted gas prices to be going down, not up, in the lead-up to November's midterm elections, end quote. So, and that's another very important point. Not only do they want to starve out, I think that's the, yeah, starve out uh, the Russian war effort. They want to make it harder for Russia to fuel its war against Ukraine. But that last point's very, very interesting, which is Biden wanted to ensure that the gas prices were going down into November. And, you know, that makes sense. You, you don't want your people to be facing higher inflation, especially when your party is the party in power. And if you've been paying attention, and if you haven't been paying attention, let me just describe, there's been a rumor going around. And I'll say rumor because the Saudi government put it out there and with the context of this article, it may have been a bigger political play. But there has been a rumor that the Biden administration went to the Saudis and said, just don't do not do this cut for another month. Give it one more month. And when he said that, guess what One was one month away practically? Oh, the election. So basically, it can't hurt the people's pocketbooks until after the election. So then there's one less reason to vote Democrats. I say that's a rumor. There have been the Saudi government has put out references about it. And, you know, like I said, it could be a broader political play. So I'm not trying to say it's 100 percent true. I think it's very interesting that Republicans and some commentators on the conservative side have pointed to it and said, quid pro quo, quid pro quo. Oh, my gosh, this is an impeachable offense. And while I don't know the facts and I don't know if it happened exactly as the Saudis are saying, I think it's a waste of time. 
to be honest, we did this whole chase down an impeachable allegation for Trump. I think until it is outright proven and they have evidence, we don't need to play this game. We don't need to have another two years of impeachment trials that go to the Senate and likely won't get ratified by the entire Senate or at least two thirds of it. So it's just a dumb political game that we've been playing. They're responding to what the Democrats did. The conservatives are mad that the Democrats went after Trump so hard. So now they want to do it to Biden. And I understand. I, I get where that comes from. And they want to hold power accountable. At least that's their argument. But I think at the end of the day, and I know this is a terrible point because a lot of people disagree. A lot of people say the conservatives don't need to step above it, which is what I was going to say. They need to be above that. They, they need to step back and say, oh, no, 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 we're going to not do this and hopefully lead us towards a more civilized approach in Congress and the Senate. And I know, I know, that's naive of me. I mean, they made the exact same argument with China. Oh, if we give them support, if we trade with them, we're going to spread our liberal values. If we're better than them and we don't hate them and we try to be nice to them, then at the end of the day, they'll become a great ally. They won't threaten us on the world stage. They won't become a rising superpower. China, of course, has become a rising superpower. They've kept their authoritarian regime inside their nation and they have not become more democratic. Have they become more liberal when it comes to, or at least have they become more capitalistic in the way that they address some of their uh, exporting, importing, some of their trade policies? Sure. At the end of the day, they are still a communist regime, and we have not spread democracy to China. So it may be naive of me to say that the Republicans need to be above this in-the-mud war to try to impeach the president and try to sully his name. But I, I don't think it will get us anywhere. And I think they have more important issues to address, like inflation, ensuring that we don't have to cut as many jobs, that we don't have to have a really high unemployment rate in order to ensure that we can get this inflation under control. So that's just my two cents on it. But, you know, it, it really it really doesn't it really doesn't matter because <laughs> my opinion at the end of the day the Republicans are going to run with it. They're using it as kind of a October surprise. And there's a quote here that you know talks about it a little bit more. Uh, quote, of course, the real reason why Republicans are so quiet about the Saudis' betrayal is that they stand to benefit from it politically on a massive scale. In itself, a slight uptick in gas prices isn't necessarily a game changer for the midterm elections. But with so many tight races and key battlegrounds, it's bad news for the ruling party, a.k.a. the Democrats. A recent piece at The Intercept makes the case that the oil production cuts are a deliberate act of election interference on the part of Prince Mohammed, who is friendly with Trump and stands to benefit from a Republican takeover of Congress that would set up Trump or some other MAGA stand-in to win the presidential election in 2024. Several analysts who spoke to The Intercept interpret the move as de a deliberate October surprise from the Saudis, end quote. And though I, I cannot pretend to know their intentions, one of the first things that came to mind when I first heard this story was that there was a political aspect to this move. And, you know, it could really shift the, the balance here in America and, you know, we'll see if this October surprise pans out the way that the, the Saudis want it to. But you can't deny that they, 
They really do like Republican governance, considering they're more willing to put up with some of their human rights abuses in order to be a partner in the Middle East and ensure that the, the gas keeps on pumping. So, But, you know, that's enough negative stuff about the world stage, enough negative stuff about our education system and so on. Let's get to our daily delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue site. I've been using them a lot recently. They just have some really cute stories. Stubborn Golden Retriever refuses to get out of the pool. So we have a, a young Golden Retriever here named Duke who had his little antics posted by his owner, Kimberly. And all we can see is, you know, Duke standing in the pool and his head just barely standing above the water. Quote, of course, golden retrievers love water, but Duke seems to be taking things to the next level. No matter how many times Kimberly asked him to get out of the pool, he just swims around and enjoys life. He's not in a hurry to get out, and it seems as if, as if he doesn't want to. Yeah, and he does look really cozy. Like I was saying, he has his head just barely above the water. He's kind of perching his head over the edge of the pool like, no, mom, I don't want to get out. Quote, we know that he is pleading with his mother to get out of the pool, but hearing it and seeing the video at the same time is just too funny. It's one of those videos that you will treasure from the moment you see first see it. It's also one that you're sure to watch more than once, end quote. So if you want to see any of Duke's cute little antics, any of the videos that they have on this article, or if you want to read any of today's articles, they will be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also, if you want convenient little tidbits here or there or an easy link to the podcast, follow me on Twitter. I post something every single day just trying to get some extra news out there. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, it's mainly links to the podcast, but maybe there's some extra commentary that you can see there. Just trying to make your lives easy and trying to make news consumption convenient. With that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.